I am Dr. Rapp, and this is Appreciating Shakespeare, Series 2, Podcast K, Othello. Othello is often classified as a domestic tragedy because its tragic events take place largely within a private household. It can also be classified as a de Cassibus tragedy since it depicts the fall of a great man from greatness. I will be discussing kinds of tragedy in Session 1 of Chapter 10 in Series 1. Beyond these classifications, the play is to be understood poetically as well as literally. In fact, Othello is a realistic allegory of the fall of man. The character Othello is a particular man with a tragic flaw. He is also man, an everyman, who suffers from the besetting sin of pride and falls to destruction because of his choices, like Adam in the Garden of Eden. The snake in this version of the story is Iago, who uses a serpentine and devilish pseudo-logic to seduce Othello into tragic error. However, the final choice that results in perdition is Othello's own. Realistic allegory sounds like an oxymoron, and in a sense it is, expressing in one phrase the unity of paradoxical opposites that Shakespeare achieves in the drama of the play. The allegorical implications of Othello take nothing away from the empathic power of its realistic drama. Shakespeare's ability to unite these two apparently disparate modes of drama, realistic particulars and universal significance, into a single experience of meaning is perhaps the greatest glory of his art. I discussed this subject under the heading of universal realism in Session 3 of Chapter 1 in Series 1. In Joseph and His Brothers, Thomas Mann writes, We wander in the footsteps of others, and all of life is a pouring of the present into mythic forms. But since the tendency of our time is to focus on particulars at the expense of universals, we may write the imbalance by stressing the more universal implications that this drama would have held for Shakespeare's audience. Those who have been exposed to Disney's Donald Duck may remember cartoons in which Donald had a decision to make. In them, an angel Donald and a devil Donald appeared beside him out of his own head and proceeded to tempt him to do the right and the wrong things respectively. You can see these Disney cartoons online. Look up Donald's Better Self and Donald's Decision. This allegorical representation of a conflict between good and evil within the mind has a long history, beginning with a poem by Prudentius from the early 5th century called Psychomachia, meaning soul battle, in which representations of human virtues battle representations of human vices. Shakespeare has inherited this tradition of depicting a soul in inner conflict. However, in Othello, true to his style of universal realism, Shakespeare embeds his allegorical psychomachia in a realistic drama, giving to the opposing forces at war within the mind of Othello a local habitation and a name, as Theseus calls it in Act 5, Scene 1, Line 17, of A Midsummer Night's Dream. Desdemona, whose name comes from the Greek for unfortunate, or 
by another possible derivation, twice blessed, is both a real person of virtuous character and an angelic spirit who draws Othello's free will toward the Christian virtues of humility, patience, and forgiveness. Iago, named for the Moor-slaying patron saint of Catholic Spain, Renaissance England's enemy, is both a real person of evil character and the incarnation of a demonic force, a devil. He tempts Othello into doubt, jealousy, betrayal, and murder. The story of this play is the fall of Othello, not only from happiness to misery and death, but from grace to damnation. Desdemona is a modest, obedient, and faithful wife, but she is also an embodiment of the angelic principle of grace, Othello's most precious companion in both senses. As we will see, Cassio calls her at Act 2, Scene 1, Line 73, the divine Desdemona. In the play's last scene, Graziano, whose name comes from the Italian for grace and pardon, when he finds that Othello has killed Desdemona, says at lines 208 to 209 that if her father were alive to see this sight, it would cause him to curse his better angel from his side and fall to reprobance. Here, reprobance means damnation. Cursing his better angel from his side is exactly what Othello has done in killing his innocent wife under the influence of his worser angel, Iago. I'll give further evidence of Desdemona's angelic role later in Key Line 1. According to traditional Christian doctrine, the seven deadly sins are the roots of all other sins. The second of the deadly sins is envy, for which, in addition to the first sin of pride, it was believed that Lucifer was cast out of heaven into hell. One form that envy may take is jealousy. As Iago poisons Othello's mind with jealousy, Shakespeare compels us to think of Iago himself not only as an evil man with a grudge, but as a devil of jealousy. He does so partly by giving us a variety of motives for Iago's hatred of Othello without allowing us to settle on any one of them. Coleridge called Iago a motiveless malignity because with every appearance he offers a different reason for his choice to ruin Othello. But each of those pretexts represents a form of envy. In addition, many lines contribute to the impression of Iago's demonic metaphysical existence. At the end of Act 1, Scene 3, at lines 403 to 404, Iago says of his plan to destroy Othello, Hell and night must bring this monstrous birth to the world's light. And when Iago's crimes are known in Act 5, Scene 2, Othello says at lines 286 to 287, I look down toward his feet, but that's a fable. If that thou beest a devil, I cannot kill thee. Whereupon he stabs Iago, but fails to kill him. The devil was traditionally figured as having the cloven hoofs of a goat instead of feet, and human beings cannot kill the devil, but only shame him through their own choice for good over evil. Iago, then, is both a 28-year-old Venetian human villain and an incarnation of the devil of jealousy. 
I'll give further evidence of Iago's demonic role later in Key Line 2. Desdemona is herself and an angel. Iago is himself and also a devil. Othello, then, is himself and also man. He is a particular man tricked by an evil servant into jealousy about his innocent wife, but he is also a representation, like Donald Duck in the cartoons, of every man's inner life as a battlefield between humility and pride, trust and suspicion, fidelity and betrayal, good and evil, Desdemona and Iago. But in the contest for Othello's soul, unlike in the Donald Duck cartoons, the stakes could not be higher. To shed light on this war within Othello between the spirits of Desdemona, patient humility, and Iago, envy, Shakespeare establishes a symbolic parallel in the outer world. He makes Cyprus the locus of the war between the Christian Venetians and the Muslim Turks, who, since medieval times, were thought of as the infidel enemies of Christian Europe. At Act 1, Scene 3, Line 8, we hear that the Turkish fleet is threatening Venice-held Cyprus. At line 14, the Duke and Senators are told that the Turks are heading instead for Rhodes. About this news, the first Senator wisely observes at line 16 to 18, This cannot be by no assay of reason. Tis a pageant to keep us in false gaze. Considering their general nature and motives, the Turks must be engaging in a ruse and are no doubt headed, in fact, for Cyprus. The Duke agrees, and then further news at lines 38 to 39 confirms their conclusion. The Turks are indeed headed for Cyprus after all. Thereupon Othello enters and is put into service to lead the Venetian fleet against the enemy Turks. This conflict over the island of Cyprus becomes a metaphor for Othello's inner conflict. By his pretense of honesty, Iago plays the role of the deceitful Turks, intentionally misleading the deliberations of the Senate within Othello's mind. Iago's real intention is to destroy Othello through the unjustified attack on the Cyprus that is Desdemona. Pride is the first and most fundamental of the seven deadly sins. Envy, the second sin, can grab hold only of a will already corrupted by pride. Pride in his image of himself is Othello's besetting sin. It is because of it that the villain of envy, Iago, can work upon him so effectively. In Act 1, Scene 2, lines 21 to 24, Othello boasts, while recognizing that it is not proper to do so, that I fetch my life and being from men of royal siege, and my demerits may speak unbonneted to as proud a fortune as this that I have reached. And a few lines later he says, My parts, my title, and my perfect soul shall manifest me rightly. The assertion that anyone has a perfect soul would fall on the ears of the Christians in Shakespeare's audience as unchristian arrogance. They believed that all men are sinners and hence ought to be humble. Perfection of soul belonged to Christ alone, 
and only through penitence and faith in Christ could a man be redeemed from sin and damnation. This hint of self-worship in Othello is the dram of evil in his character. The phrase is from Hamlet, Act 1, Scene 4, Line 36. That dram will be fanned into fatally sinful action by Iago and destroy all the noble substance of Othello. As he says at Act 1, Scene 3, Lines 82 to 87, Othello has been a fighter all his life, little blessed with the soft phrase of peace. And little of this great world can I speak more than pertains to feats of broils and battle. In psychological terms, it is that battle mentality that he brings, with Iago's help, into the realm of marriage, where it proves disastrous. In spiritual terms, Othello, originally a pagan, has nominally become a Christian, but his soul has not absorbed the essence of the Christian message to the point of humbling his pride. He is used to confessing the vices of my blood, as he says in Act 1, Scene 3, Line 123, but apparently recognizes no vices of his mind. For this reason, he is susceptible to the wiles of Iago. I'll offer further evidence of Othello's pride later in Key Line 3. Act 2, Scene 1 gives a dramatic and poetic metaphor of Othello's condition. Surprisingly, the defeat of the Turks at sea is accomplished not by a sea battle guided by the hero Othello, but by a providential storm. That it is providential is implied by the second gentleman's description in which earthly water threatens heavenly fires. He says at lines 16 to 17, I never did like molestation view on the enchafed flood. Like the main characters, this storm at sea is itself and also a metaphor for the trials that man, represented by Othello, faces in the world. By contrast, angels and devils are not subject to testing by worldly challenges, having long since made their choices for and against God. Thus, both the angel Desdemona and the devil Iago supernaturally pass from Venice to Cyprus without incident or delay despite the storm. As Cassio puts it in the same scene at line 68 to 73, Tempests themselves, high seas and howling winds, the guttered rocks and congregated sands, traitors and steeped to enclog the guiltless keel, as having sense of beauty, do omit their mortal natures, letting go safely by the divine Desdemona. By contrast, Cassio has prayed about Othello at lines 44 to 46. Oh, let the heavens give him defense against the elements, for I have lost him on a dangerous sea. Cassio adds at lines 48 to 49 that Othello has some things going for him. His bark is stoutly timbered, and his pilot a very expert and approved allowance. The strong ship in the physical realm represents in the moral realm Othello's gifts of strength, courage, and heroism, and also the fact of his conversion from paganism to Christianity. The skilled pilot is Othello's free will, given by God to be equal to whatever task he may face. 
the heaven-sent defeat of the Turks and his difficult but successful passage ought to humble Othello, but his self-glorifying habit of mind remains. Later in the same scene, Act Two, Scene One, happy to find Desdemona safely at Cyprus ahead of him, Othello, at lines 185 to 193, figures his reunion with her under the metaphor of Judgment Day. If after every tempest comes such calms, may the winds blow till they have wakened death. And then, if it were now to die, t'were now to be most happy, for I fear my soul hath her content so absolute that not another comfort like to this succeeds in unknown fate. Othello can conceive no greater fulfillment than reunion with his wife in the physical world. He implies that now that he personally has arrived at ultimate happiness, it would be fine for the world to end. This is a dangerously self-important attitude for a Christian, and Desdemona corrects him at lines 193 to 195. The heavens forbid but that our loves and comforts should increase even as our days do grow. From birth a virtuous Christian who hopes for heaven, Desdemona recognizes the danger of Othello's vainglory in assuming they have already arrived at the destination of ultimate love and comfort. Meanwhile, Iago hears this exchange and observes at line 199 to 200, Oh, you are well tuned now, but I'll set down the pegs that make this music. His metaphor is the tuning pegs of a stringed instrument. The center of the play is Iago's subtle untuning of that marital music. The long, complex, seemingly rational cultivation of jealousy in the mind of Othello in Act 3, Scene 3, under the pretense of honesty. During it, Othello will come to trust Iago's reputation for honesty more than he trusts the fidelity of his own wife. Iago's words work at injuring Othello's characteristically proud self-image by inventing an imaginary infidelity in Desdemona. From there, Iago leads Othello through one false premise, innuendo, illogical deduction, and lie after another to the fatal conclusion. He begins at line 35 with, Ha! I like not that. Moves on to implications about Cassio, then to appealing to Othello's pride by setting a very high value on reputation, then to cautioning against jealousy. Since Othello is failing to see through the hypocrisies of Iago, there is terrible irony in his boasting, at lines 179 to 192, of a discernment founded on a logical fallacy. No, to be once in doubt is once to be resolved. I'll see before I doubt, when I doubt, prove. And on the proof, there is no more but this. Away at once, with love or jealousy. In this fallacy, we may discover the genius of our modern judicial system's assertion that an indicted person is to be presumed innocent until proven guilty. Why? Because innocence cannot be proven. Only guilt can be proven. It can be shown by evidence that one has been present and has done an evil deed. Witnesses, fingerprints, video, DNA. 
but absence of witnesses, fingerprints, video, or DNA cannot prove that one was not there and did not do it. That is why our juries are instructed to find defendants either proven to be guilty or not proven to be guilty. They cannot be expected to find them proven to be innocent. Thus, when Othello asserts that if once he doubts Desdemona, he will prove her either guilty or innocent, and then abandon either love or suspicion, he is falling into a trap. First of all, to suspect one's wife of infidelity is already to have betrayed her. Second, there can be no ocular proof, which he demands at line 360, that she did not sleep with Cassio. By this fallacy, Othello has opened the door to Iago's further assault upon his trust in his wife. Once Othello suspects that Desdemona may be unfaithful, all that is needed for the apparent proof of her guilt in the mind of Othello is the imagery provided by Iago's words and a little handkerchief. For, as Iago says at lines 322 to 324, trifles light as air are to the jealous confirmation strong as proofs of holy writ. Remember that proofs of holy writ were still in Shakespeare's time thought to be authoritative, as I discussed under the subject of authority in session 3 of chapter 7 in series 1. Iago's performance does the trick within the space of this one long scene of Act 3, Scene 3. When Othello at line 213, as a formula of thanks for Iago's professed love to him, says, I am bound to thee forever. We are chilled to the bone at the foreboding metaphysical implication of this verbal betrothal to the demon. The seduction scene then concludes with Hell's version of their wedding. Kneeling, Othello at line 459 vows revenge on the innocent Desdemona and Cassio. Kneeling with him, Iago then vows to put all his wit, hands, heart to wronged Othello's service. What we know that Othello does not is that Othello is wronged not by Desdemona and Cassio, but by Iago himself, and the service he will do Othello is to destroy him. Allegorically, Othello has divorced his soul from Desdemona's and wedded it to the devil of jealousy. The consummation of that wedding will lie in vengeful murder, disguised, as Iago is disguised, as justice. The justice of strangling his wife in her bed pleases, says Othello at Act 4, Scene 1, lines 207 to 209. In the beginning of Act 5, Scene 2, the last scene of the play, Othello enters imagining that he is the embodiment of justice itself. His first speech is calm and slow, suggesting his certainty about the rightness of the murder he is about to commit. He imagines that he is killing not Desdemona, but her guilt, her sin, her betrayal, the cause of line one. He makes it an obligation to kill her, else she'll betray more men, line six. Then he says, O balmy breath that dost almost persuade justice to break her sword, lines 16 to 17. Worse, he imagines he is acting like God, 
This sorrow's heavenly. It strikes where it doth love. Lines 21 to 22. There is sadness in him, but no Christian humility and no self-doubt. And it is not long before Desdemona's plea for mercy makes Othello call what I intend to do a murder which I thought a sacrifice. Lines 64 to 65. After Othello has done the deed, his language explodes into disjointed chaos at lines 91 to 101. In modern editions, dashes are used to indicate shifts in the person being spoken to. Othello is directing his words alternately to Amelia and then to himself. Yes, tis Amelia. By and by, she's dead. Tis like she, meaning Amelia, comes to speak of Cassio's death. The noise was high. Ha! No more moving? Still is the grave. Shall she come in? Were it good? I think she stirs again. No. What's best to do? If she come in, she'll sure speak to my wife. My wife! My wife! What wife? I have no wife. Oh, insupportable! Oh, heavy hour! Methinks it should be now a huge eclipse of sun and moon, and that the frighted globe did yawn at alteration. Othello's calm certainty is gone, his mind now flitting from one thing to another. Earlier, at Act 3, Scene 3, Lines 90 to 92, he has said about Desdemona, Perdition catch my soul, but I do love thee, meaning if I do not love thee, and when I love thee not, chaos is come again. Here now, after he has killed Desdemona, is that foreshadowed chaos, not of the world, but of Othello's mind, expressed in Shakespeare's subtle but powerful alteration in the quality of the verse. However, despite the anguish, there is still no self-reproach. Hence, perdition will indeed catch his soul. Othello imagines that the death of Desdemona should bring on the same eclipse and earthquake that attended the death of Christ, as described in the Gospel of Matthew, for example, at chapter 27, verses 45 and 51. As in Act 2, Scene 1, Othello's greeting of Desdemona was riddled with vainglory, so after killing her, Othello expresses self-glorification in the universal significance of his deed, which he still believes to have been just. But now his imagery also foreshadows the death of Christ, of mercy, forgiveness, humility, in the soul of Othello. Before that happens, redemption is still possible, for Othello now faces the most crucial choice of his life. With the evidence that Amelia offers, Othello realizes his error in presuming Desdemona guilty and punishing her with death. The question now is, will he admit to his own fallibility? Will he, in guilt and repentance, humble himself before the state and God? Will he bear his error with real patience, contrasting with the patience recommended in the fruitless platitudes of the Duke at Act 1, Scene 3, Lines 202 to 209, beginning, when remedies are past, the griefs are ended. Desdemona still might guide him rightly. At Act 4, Scene 3, Lines 104 to 105, she had spoken words of hope, even for the guilty. 
God me such uses send, not to pick bad from bad, but by bad mend. And in this scene, Act 5, Scene 2, at line 125, with her last breath, Desdemona has forgiven Othello. Commend me to my kind lord, O oh, farewell. Given this hope, will Othello repent and seek forgiveness, and thereby redemption? Othello's answer is no. And now there is no question of any external influence by Iago. Despite having heard Desdemona's word of forgiveness, even now, at lines 273 to 275, Othello belies his wife. When we shall meet at Comte, meaning at the final accounting, the last judgment, this look of thine will hurl my soul from heaven, and fiends will snatch at it. He has never really understood Desdemona's goodness, and he cannot imagine it even now. He negates it as completely as Iago negates all virtues he confronts. Toward his own soul, Othello has now become an Iago. He takes God's judgment into his own hands. At line 277 to 280, he calls upon the devils to whip me, blow me about in winds, roast me in sulfur, wash me in steep-down gulfs of liquid fire traditional images of the punishments of the damned. He refuses to imagine the forgiveness that repentance would evoke even from Desdemona, who has proven her willingness to forgive him, let alone from God, who always forgives the penitent. That refusal dramatizes the spiritual condition of despair, the final act of Othello's human pride. As Philip Thompson writes, Othello's state of mind is one of complete satisfaction with the blamelessness of his intentions and with his manner of ending the whole unfortunate business. He should have gone down on his knees, accused himself, watered the earth with tears of repentance, and surrendered to the state to undergo an acceptable public death. Instead, he produces a soaring self-eulogy in the course of which he admits only perplexity at line 346, and a love too strong for wisdom. The latter states the opposite of the truth. Othello says at line 344 that he is one that loved not wisely but too well. That he has loved not wisely is true. That he has loved too well is self-delusion. Had he loved Desdemona more than his own self-image, Iago jealousy could never have found a way into his mind. Othello's ending is the farthest thing from the heroic death some have seen in it. The fatal error of Othello's final gesture is confirmed when Ludovico says at line 357, O bloody period, meaning conclusion, of the speech and of the life, and Graziano completes his line with, All that is spoke is marred. At lines 352 to 356, Othello brags of having killed a Turk who was beating a Venetian, and then turns his knife upon himself in imitation of how he had punished that Turk. But in punishing himself, he has become the Turk, killing the Venetian that is his own eternal soul. Key Lines 
1. Further evidence of Desdemona's role as good angel includes the following. Whate'er you be, I am obedient. Act 3, Scene 3, Line 89. If any such there be, heaven pardon him. Act 4, Scene 2, Line 135. His unkindness may defeat my life, but never taint my love. Act 4, Scene 2, Lines 160 to 161. Beshrew me if I would do such a wrong for the whole world. Act 4, Scene 3, Lines 78 to 79. A guiltless death I die. Act 5, Scene 2, Line 122. O oh, the more angel she, and you the blacker devil. Act 5, Scene 2, Lines 130 to 131. Oh, she was heavenly true. Act 5, Scene 2, Line 135. 2. Further evidence of Iago's role as devil includes the following. Saying, Heaven is my judge, not I for love and duty, but seeming so for my peculiar end. Act 1, Scene 1, Lines 59 to 60. Iago echoes the sentiment of Lucifer in rebelling against God. He confirms as much with, I am not what I am, Act 1, Scene 1, Line 65, an inversion of God's proclamation of his own name to Moses, I am that I am, in Exodus, chapter 3, verse 14. Throughout the play, Iago devalues all value, as when he defines love as merely a lust of the blood and a permission of the will, Act 1, Scene 3, Lines 332 to 335. At Act 2, Scene 1, Line 114, when his calumny against women causes Desdemona to call him slanderer, he responds, Nay, it is true, or else I am a Turk. He is a slanderer, his conclusion is not true, and morally speaking he is what Shakespeare means by a Turk, that is, an infidel. In Act 2, Scene 3, Lines 350-353, to he proclaims Hell's divinity, meaning teaching or theology. Divinity of hell, when devils will the blackest sins put on, they do suggest, meaning tempt, at first with heavenly shows, as I do now. In the middle of the seduction scene, Iago sneaks in an honest confession that oft my jealousy shapes faults that are not. Act 3, scene 3, lines 147 to 148, though of course Othello is not meant to take it seriously. Ironically, in the same scene at lines 368 to 373, Othello curses Iago in a way that, unlike Othello, we know to be apt. If thou dost slander her and torture me, never pray more. Abandon all remorse. On horror's head, horrors accumulate. Do deeds to make heaven weep, all earth amazed. For nothing canst thou to damnation add greater than that. In Act 3, Scene 4, at lines 160 to 162, Emilia says about jealous souls, They are not ever jealous for the cause, but jealous for their jealous. It is a monster begot upon itself, born on itself. For here means because. And in the same scene, at lines 184 to 185, Cassio says about Bianca's jealousy, Throw your vile guesses in the devil's teeth, from whence you have them. When Othello hints at thinking Desdemona dishonest, Emilia says, 
at Act 4, Scene 2, Lines 15 to 16. If any wretch have put this in your head, let heaven requite it with the serpent's curse, referring to the biblical curse upon the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 to 15. Later, at Act 4, Scene 2, Lines 130 to 133, she says, I will be hanged if some eternal villain have not devised this slander. At Act 5, Scene 1, Lines 19-20, to 20, Iago expresses a classic instance of envy, saying of Cassio, He hath a daily beauty in his life that makes me ugly. At Act 5, Scene 2, Line 292, he is a damned slave. At Line 301, a demi-devil. At Line 316, a damned villain. Finally, at the end, Lodovico, in Lines 333-334, to 334, seeks to punish Iago with some cunning cruelty that can torment him much and hold him long, an image that approximates the definition of hell. 3. Further evidence of Othello's pride includes the following. Othello says at Act 1, Scene 3, Lines 273 to 274, that if ever sexual desire blinds his intellect, then let all indign and base adversities make head against my estimation. Indign means disgraceful and undeserving. Make head means raise an army. And estimation here means reputation. Hence, if ever my mind becomes clouded by sexual desire, let all disgraceful adversities make war against my reputation. It is only in his reputation, not his soul, that Othello can imagine being injured. His agony at Desdemona's supposed betrayal is substantially about his self-image, his reputation. At Act 3, Scene 3, Lines 386-388, to he says, My name, that was as fresh as Dian's visage, is now begrimed and black as mine own face. Cuckold me, he shouts at Act 4, Scene 1, Line 200. In the next scene, Act 4, Scene 2, Lines 47 to 64, in the name of the wound to his pride, he rejects the virtue of patience. Had it pleased heaven to try me with affliction, had they rained all kind of sores and shames on my bare head, I would have found in some place of my soul a drop of patience. But alas, to make me the fixed figure for the time of scorn, to point his slow, unmoving finger at, Yet could I bear that too, well, very well. But there, where I have garnered up my heart, to be discarded thence, turn thy complexion there, patience, thou young and rose-lipped cherubin. I, here, look grim as hell. After bragging that he could patiently bear any affliction, he renounces patience just when he is called to embrace it. Once again, he has learned the concept of humble patience, but not absorbed it into his will, which remains locked in pride. Now here are some notes to help you in your reading. 1. Othello's Race There is an antithesis of images in the play in the use of the colors white and black. White is the color of Desdemona and the Venetians, and Othello is what was called a blackamoor, that is, a dark-skinned African. It is important to be clear about the role that the color of Othello's skin plays in the play. 
just as Shakespeare had inherited the doctrinal anti-Semitism that suffused the history of Christian Europe, as I discussed in Series 2, Podcast C, on The Merchant of Venice, so he inherited the medieval idea that black was the color of the devil. In women, the ideal of beauty was to be fair-skinned rather than tan or brown or olive, a distinction that gives point to Shakespeare's dark lady sonnets. In The Merchant of Venice, Shakespeare had humanized an old stereotype character and given him a choice to make between the good that was open to him and the evil that would confirm the justice of his being vilified. And so it is in Othello. Shakespeare turns the stereotype of uncivilized black African into a nobleman, a heroic general, a defender of civilization against the also stereotypically infidel Turks. As with Shylock, Shakespeare gives Othello a moral choice to make. The Duke says to Brabantio at Act 1, Scene 3, lines 289 to 290, If virtue no delighted beauty lack, your son-in-law is far more fair than black. The Duke's point is not to make a racist slur, but to turn Brabantio from thinking about Othello's color to thinking about Othello's character as Martin Luther King Jr. exhorted us all to do about one another in his great I Have a Dream speech at the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. on August 28, 1963. And Othello's great choice, entirely apart from the color of his skin, is between pride and penitence. Had Othello repented for killing Desdemona and gone to his knees before God's judgment, he might have hoped for redemption. But in taking the judgment of his soul upon himself, as he took the judgment of Desdemona upon himself, he makes the evil choice. In short, Shakespeare gives us in Othello not a man condemned to be seen as evil because of his color, but a responsible moral being who must make the same spiritual choices and be held to the same universal standards as everyone else. It is only the villains Iago and Roderigo who call Othello by epithets that we would consider racist slurs. By the others, he is admired until his own actions reveal him to have chosen the path of evil. 2. A Note on the Text of Othello The text of Othello presents extreme difficulties because while both the first quarto and the first folio texts have some authority, they differ in many significant respects, and neither their relation to one another nor their relation to their manuscript sources is clearly discernible. Most modern editions involve some conflation of readings from both early texts based on varying principles of choice. Students interested in further study of the textual problems with Othello should begin with the note on the text in any reputable edition of the play. There they will find references to longer scholarly studies. 3. In Act 2, Scene 1, when Othello arrives safely on shore, he greets Desdemona at line 182 as, Oh, my fair warrior. Literally, he means that she has sailed into a war zone to be with him. At the same time, we understand metaphorically that Desdemona is in the role of a Christian Venice 
warring against the infidel Turk, Iago, for the Cyprus that is Othello's soul. 4. Philip Thompson has suggested a possible emendation of the text at Act 4, Scene 1, Line 1. Othello's first speech should be stretched to include the what that begins Iago's second line. It would read thus, Iago, will you think so? Othello, think so, Iago? What? Iago, to kiss in private? 5. At Act 5, Scene 1, lines 35 to 36, Othello says, Forth of my heart those charms thine eyes are blotted. Thy bed, lust-stained, shall with lust's blood be spotted. The clotted arrangement of sounds and pauses in this couplet force it to be spoken extremely slowly and deliberately. The awkwardness indicates Othello's clotted mind, which at the beginning of Act Five, Scene Two, is overlaid with the pseudo-ceremony of his soliloquy before the murder, expressed in calm, smooth, ordered speech, Act Five, Scene Two, Lines One to Thirty-Four, and which after the murder explodes into the mental chaos expressed in chaotic speech, lines 91 to 105. 6. At Act 5, Scene 2, lines 346 to 348, Othello says, Of one whose hand, like the base, either Judean or Indian, threw a pearl away richer than all his tribe. The first folio has I-U-D-E-A-N, and the first quarto has I-N-D-I-A-N. The word Judean or Judean could easily become Indian, I-N-D-E-A-N, by the typesetters turning upside down of the letter U. The word Indian could easily become Judean, I-U-D-I-A-N, in the same way. How the two respective typesetters got to the two spellings we have is unknown, and we are left to judge for ourselves which of the two readings seems superior. My own argument would be for Judean, as a reference to Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus, as Othello has betrayed Desdemona, and who by his suicide threw away the possibility of heaven, which we can compare to the pearl of great price in Matthew chapter 13, verse 46. Judean could also refer less aptly to Herod the Great, who had his beloved wife Mariamne killed. This reading of the image as Judean is in keeping with the Christian imagery that runs throughout the play. The reference to a random Indian ignorant of the value of a random jewel, while possible, to me seems significantly less plausible. I am Dr. Rapp, and this is Appreciating Shakespeare. Shakespeare.